Welcome to the CopyPress Content Marketing Podcast. I'm Dave Snyder, founder and CEO of CopyPress. Join me as I discuss content marketing with experts and some of the brightest minds in content marketing and SEO. Discover what it takes to get your content noticed and stay ahead of changes in content marketing, SEO, and online marketing. Welcome to the CopyPress Content Marketing Podcast. Welcome. I hope that you're all doing well to our friends all around the world. I know that we've got people registered from Australia, India, different countries in Europe, the United States. As they always say in the movies, please silence your cell phone now. <laughs> Even <laughs> presenters. I'm David Cross. I'm in Portland, Oregon, or just outside Portland, Oregon, in a little town called Estacada, which you may have seen on the news about wildfires a couple of years ago. Dave Snyder is my friend, CEO of CopyPress. He founded CopyPress about 11 years ago. And Greg Gifford, just north of Dallas, Texas. And he is the vice president of search for Search Lab, an expert in local SEO as well. So we're very excited to welcome you here today. We've got a few slides to show you, but I'd like to talk more about what our webinar is about today. Search intent. And search intent, you know, everyone talks about search intent, but what is search intent? Well, search intent is perhaps typified by a quote from Albert Einstein. What did Albert Einstein know about search intent? Well, Einstein said, I want to know the thoughts of God, the rest are details. And what he, wants, what he was saying by that was he wanted to know the intent behind the creation of the universe. Now, search intent is not quite as cosmic as that, but search intent is all about the intent behind the search. What's the person actually using Google for? What do they want to know behind their query? And so that's what the webinar's about today and how you can make use of search intent to better shape your content and provide a better experience for the person that's coming along. I'm very happy that you're here today. We'll start the presentation and Dave will kick off for us. Tell us a bit more about search intent and then we'll take some questions at the end of the webinar. Over yeah. to you, Dave. Yeah, hi, everybody. I'm Dave Snyder, CEO of CopyPress, as was already said by a guy with a better accent than mine. As he said, we're going to be talking about search intent today. It's not a crazy, sexy topic, but it is probably the most important topic in terms of creating content online. And honestly, something that I don't see a lot of people discussing when they talk about content. With us today, we have Greg Gifford, who is not my younger brother, just looks like a smaller version of me. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Greg. Uh, happy to be here, man. And we already met David Cross, who is also not my brother. It's just three white guys with beards on this on this webinar right now. <laughs> we need to find some more diversity more, for more, our next more, webinar. More accurately... Three guys with white beards. Yeah, I know. It's something that makes me sad. I've thought about dying it, by the way. We'll talk about that at another <laughs> another juncture. <laughs> yeah, so what is search intent? You know, some of this is going to be really basic for some of you. For others of you, it's not going to be as basic. And so I always like to talk to, you know, the lowest denominator in the room is meaning somebody who really needs all the information. And then we'll, we'll kind of build the ground and build from there. But you know, search intent really just comes down to why is this person putting this query into Google? So, for example, when somebody types in the query buy a basketball, that person 
has a desire for a transaction. They are looking to take an action and that action is to buy, right? That is the intent of that search. And there are four general types of search intent. Now, I used to actually make a mistake with this model and only break down two of them, you know, because I don't think a lot about navigational search intent. And I will call this the mom factor of search intent is a navigational search, right? This is like my mom typing facebook.com into Google to get to Facebook and those kind of things. But I, I find myself doing some of that as well, but worth discussing for branding purposes. But I used to really break it down to just informational and commercial. And that's incorrect, right? Commerce online has a pretty huge funnel. You know this really well, Greg, from the auto industry, right? Like there is a ton of research that goes into the full commercial spectrum before the actual transaction. And so, yeah, for sure. Transactional intent is just the very bottom of that funnel. This person is looking to buy this thing right now, which we don't see in some higher end purchases. We see more of a commercial intent for queries as they're reviewing stuff. So, you know, we're going to go through each one of these kind of look at them and what they're for. Again, navigational intent. These are search queries based on a user's desire to go to a specific URL or domain. So these would include like, again, searching for Facebook, the brand, or CopyPress, right? Twitter.com, or even putting a URL into Google, which, you know, it might seem crazy, but even on my mobile device today, I can I have to be honest, it's happened to me before where like, I don't know the difference of what I'm doing anymore when I'm putting stuff in. It might have to do with the whitening of the beard and whatnot. But, you know, like these are navigational intents. These are people that are looking to go directly to a specific place once they've typed in their information. So informational intent. This is the one that CopyPress probably deals with the most as a company. These are search queries where the user is looking for specific information on a topic. Many of these search queries can look like or be reframed as questions, right? So what is informational intent? Informational intent, define informational intent. These are all kind of variants of the same concept, but they're all similar queries. Somebody is looking for information, not necessarily for information to make a purchase, right? Because then... That would veer us into commercial intent. These are people that are looking for generalized information. Informational intent. Like, you know, you got a couple of big clues because, you know, there, there have been times as we go through and we're really writing content where we, we have to ask, is this commercial intent or informational intent? Because again, somebody in the purchasing funnel is looking for information. But the question is, what's the difference between these two? Well, Informational intent, you'll notice pretty staggeringly has no ads on the page generally, right? These aren't very valuable from a, a paid search perspective. They have rich snippets very often. This one's a definitive rich snippet that's on the page here. And then there's also a people also ask box on the page oftentimes, right? Like SERPs are going to be very independent of their own thing. But there are some clues that you can see that are similar across different queries. Transactional intent. These are queries that happen at the very bottom of the buying funnel. So people that are searching with the term buy, discount, coupon. I mean, these are, I'm actively done researching. I am ready to purchase. These are going to be 
the ones where Google doesn't even have listings anymore. It's just a bunch of ads and Google shopping. Google knows what you want. I mean, to be fair here, Google knows you want to purchase and they're giving you people that are advertising the purchasing. So if these were the only SERPs that we saw this kind of stuff on, I think I'd be okay. But we obviously see it on others. But you know, you're going to see a whole ton of paid stuff on these pages. But that's also the clue, honestly, for commercial intent versus informational intent. Right. So these queries happen higher in the buying funnel, but still represent a user looking for information to make a purchase. Queries with commercial intent are often deployed by searchers looking to investigate a product. So think about, you know, best mattresses, mattresses, buying guide, Casper, not Casper, (laughs) mattress reviews. So, you know, reviews are a huge component of this research piece. Buying guides, buyer's guides, if you're talking about content creation. But again, if we look at that commercial intent SERP, it's going to look really similar to that transactional SERP, right? We're going to have a whole lot of ads and a whole lot of shopping on it. Even though, theoretically, it looks kind of like an informational query. I think from a content program design perspective, if you're trying to figure out how you implement more of an informational template to content versus commercial and which topics should be isolated for those. Your SERPs hold the key. What should you be writing this for? You know, like the mattress buying guide needs to be written for a commercial intent. So to differentiate, you're at what, where is the consumer in the buying cycle? If they want to buy immediately, you know, you have a transactional intent on your hand. And then if it's something where it's higher in the funnel, again, mattress buying guide, they don't even know what mattress they want to buy yet. That's not transactional. That's commercial in nature. All right. So let's talk about optimizing for different search intents. So now that we know what the four search intents are, we'll talk about how to optimize for each one. Optimizing for navigational intent. Now, this may seem very simple, but I mean, not everybody knows basic SEO, right? So I think first things first, basic SEO. Make sure your pages are being indexed properly. Make sure you have canonicals worked out. Like, you know, are we www? Are we not? I mean, these are, ba- again, basic concepts, but we're talking to people that might not think about it. I also think, though, there's value here from a prospect of just thinking about the brand as a whole, right? Yeah. When I think about sports scores as an example... I will go straight to ESPN. And so if your brands can become the brands for a topic, you can actually get navigational intent. The other thing to also remember as marketers, if you open up your Google Analytics right now, your top keyword is most likely going to be your brand, right? I mean, dependent on what you're doing, right? Your payday loans, maybe it's payday loans. But if you have a solid brand, you're Top keyword is going to be your brand. Owning that brand is important. There's ORM implications here as well. So navigational intent, I don't think it's just something to disregard and be like, all right, this is just my mom searching Facebook within Google to get to Facebook. I think there are real implications here of the more you can optimize for this navigational intent, the more you're getting ahead of ORM pieces, the more that you are making sure that your brand is synonymous with the thing people may search beyond that. Right. So tons of opportunity there. So question, and I'm asking this question to Greg mostly, and I'll also add my thoughts. You know, how important is it to focus on navigational intent when creating content? And then I guess, how would you focus on navigational intent as well? 
it's hugely important depending on what kind of business you have because a lot of smaller businesses out there have names that are very similar to other businesses. So I'm a product expert on the Google My Business forum. And I was just answering a question yesterday where somebody was saying, hey, look, I set up my Google business profile. And whenever you search for me, it shows this other business that's not me, that's not even related to what I do. And it shows that the business is closed. So we're losing business because of it. Well, the problem turned out to be it was a newer business that's only been around for three or four months. And for some not intelligent reason, they chose a business name that is literally exactly the same as this other business that was closed that was in the same town as them. And the business name is one of those weird things where the business just named themselves some random name that has nothing to do. Like you don't know from the name of the business what it is that that business does. So it was just poor naming choice on their side because they just named themselves a name that turned out to be another business that was closed. And because it's so new, Google doesn't understand the intent of what people are looking for. Google thinks that that navigational intent for people Googling the name of the business is looking for that old established business that had been around for years that now due to COVID ended up closing. So these guys need to put effort into this so that when people are doing a search for that business name, there's enough SEO value there. There's enough authority there. There's enough information on their site and in Signal's offsite to prove to Google, okay, look, we are now the new entity with this same name. This is what we're looking for. And that's a really specific example, but it happens all the time that you have businesses that have very similar names. And it's really hard for Google to figure out what that intent is if you're not putting effort into building out the answer to that question on your site and saying, this is who we are and this is what we do. Yeah, I got two examples too. And I think this is one of those things. Navigational intent is almost starts when you're naming your website or business, right? Yeah. One is we worked with a company called Agora. They do video like streaming software, kind of like API build outs. But the word Agora, I believe in Greek means like earth or something, right? So 800 different businesses had the word Agora as their main thing because it was completely like generic nonsense name. And so we could not own that SERP. And furthermore, there was just like lots of confusion around that SERP. The other one is I do some consulting for a business in Tampa called Annabelle's Furniture, right? So main domain's annabellesfurniture.com. But if you search annabelles.com, it's, I think, an adult lingerie toy site. <laughs> and so Annabelle's Furniture is like a high-end furniture site with like key demographic, probably women 40 plus, very affluent. And just thinking about the concept of them likely searching Annabelle's.com repeatedly to find the website for this furniture store and coming up across this, right? And so it's like, you know, again, we can... I think navigational intent's important to think about from the perspective of like, yeah, when you're starting your website or if you have a new business or a business that's going online, like, yeah, how do you factor these things in? And they are important, even though they seem ridiculous. A lot of people don't even realize that they're important until, yeah, they're fixing their Google My Business listings and different things like that, right? Well, I mean, it's like you said a minute ago too, it's not just the name, it's the navigational intent content is brand building. It's yeah. letting people know who you are. So there's a very clear signal to Google who you are as well. Yep. 100%. All right. So now we're going to talk about optimizing for informational intent. And again, you know, as we get into these more specific ones, we could, we could do 
a hundred webinars on how to optimize for informational intent. We're going to be doing this in like two slides, I think. So, you know, very bare bones concept of how to optimize for it. But I, I do think that we cover the very top level. So informational content is really where the concept for me of 10x content comes into play. Creating content that is great for informational intent based queries is all about creating content that completely informs a user on the topic. Now, that doesn't mean the topic plus all subtopics, right? You're not writing a novel, but the specific query, can you answer everything about that query on a page and have the best piece of content? And so well-crafted content in this space is focused on it being well-researched, right? Like specifically for our writers at Copy Press, because we do a ton of this type of content, I tell them to write the piece of content that, you know, we're looking at all the other articles on the web. They all have some of the information. Can we be the one that has all the information, right? If you're the one that has all of it, then, I mean, Google needs you there. Second, valuable navigational headings, right? So if you have a piece of content that's defining something, having H tags with what is blah, right? Letting Google know, hey, this is a definitive part of the article. They're picking up on that. We see we see that in the featured snippets. Google wants those clues. They, they want you to lead you along the path of, hey, this is where the definition is. Has enough content to fully answer the question or inform the reader. This is where your style guide can become your worst enemy where you're saying, oh, well, you know, we want content at 500 words. Well, does 500 words really fully explain the topic? If no, then more, right? You need to fully explain it. You're your content length should be subject to the topic, you know, not the other way around. So like, and then the next thing, I, this is hugely important. If you have a long piece of content, links to the different portions of the article. So like submenus in the top of the article, highly valuable, quick scanning, right? Hey, I want this topic, but this is the most important thing for me. Quick scan down and also links to resources, both internally, externally, to support this topic. I mean, this is just good information architecture. This is how a well-built page is, but you'd be surprised how many companies I see do really try to do good informational content and then they've got no links to resources anywhere. <laughs> they or don't... it's a wall of text yeah. with no subheadings. And, and it's this massive thing that's impossible to read right. unless you read through the whole thing. It's just bad UI. It's like, it's just a bad user experience. It's not what Google wants. But, you know, I don't really tend to trust content personally that doesn't have resources backing it, right? Not today, not anymore. Like, I want to know where you got this information from. And too many companies are scared to link out to resources where I think that's a, a hugely valuable for a couple of reasons. So I guess question here, what are more things that a marketer or writer should do to make sure their content is optimized for informational intent? Anything you would add to that list, Greg? I'll, I'll yeah, go back to a lot of people make the mistake of thinking they need to write content for the sake of writing content, and they just churn out a bunch of generic BS. you got to do the research on the front end to figure out what are you trying to show up for that you know your potential audience is going to be searching for and use the right terminology there. Because another thing with this, too, is you have problems where business owners or marketers working for the business 
have those blinders on and you know everything about your business and you know exactly where everything is on your website. You don't think about what it's like for an absolute noob who has never bought that product or service before to come to that site. How easy is it for them to find the answer that they're looking for? And that's why you don't want that massive wall of text yeah. without subheadings that's impossible to read. You know, you mentioned word count. That's another big area where a lot of people screw up. There's all kinds of stuff on the internet of like, oh, we did research and everything that ranks number one has 1,232 characters. So you need to have at least 1,232 characters or, or words or whatever. And like, like, like you said a second ago, there is no magical word count. You know, the, the idea to hold in your head is you got to fully answer that question. The way that I always say it when I speak at conference presentations is the piece of content needs to be the best answer to the question that that searcher is asking. And you don't want to write a novel, but writing the best answer sometimes means you're answering that question and you know that there's going to be one or two subsequent questions that person might ask. And you probably ought to go ahead and put some information in there about that as well. There's no magical word count that, that that's going to apply to that. If you can write the best answer to the question and it's 500 words, then cool. That piece of content is going to work at 500 words. You don't want to add 700 words to that piece of content just to hit 1200 words because that's what you read some blog post or some research piece said because then you're adding 700 words of fluff that reduces the value both for google and for the person but you also don't want to say i'm just going to write 500 words every time because that's my word count and you're trying to squeeze in something that should take you 900 or a thousand words to write and just do it in 500 words because then it's not going to work and it's not going to show up and it's not going to help potential customers yeah, 100%. And going back to what you said about the sub-questions under the main question, again, the SERPs give us clues on what these sub-questions are and what should be in our content. This people also ask section becomes really, really viable from a standpoint of, hey, what should some of our subheadings be? What, and I'm not saying you should take directly from this list because these get wonky sometimes, but you're given little clues by Google who's running crazy advanced machine learning all the time to let you know, hey, these are topics that you might want to bucket under this if you're fully answering this question in detail, right? So yep. we, we utilize those boxes a ton when we're doing informational content. One tip about creating content that answers someone's question, very often businesses use a way of copywriting that provides the information, but it does so in such a dry, droll way that it's very boring for the person for informational intent or whatever intent. And one way that I've worked with businesses in the past that they had this problem where they could answer the question, but when it was written, it was very dry. And so we've all done you know, writing 101, but it doesn't teach you how to actually answer questions and write in a way that people naturally speak. So one thing you can do is get one of your colleagues in a room and someone who's knowledgeable about the product, record the conversation, phone them up, and then ask them a question. And then however they answer it, transcribe it. There's a great service called Otter, otter.ai, and that will allow you to transcribe it. And what you'll get is actually the conversational tone I've used this with doctors in the past where they've done websites where the content is extremely dry, but when they speak to a patient, they do so in a very conversational way. And doing it this way can be extremely good. You get a load of great content, but you also get it in a human way that feels conversational and feels yeah. like you're in the room. And that's that's a great way to create 
informational content and to do such intent without it feeling stuffy and dry. Yeah. And kind of like a segue to next month's topic is on AI content and the downfalls of AI content. And this is one of the bigger downfalls of the AI content, right? It's like a complete loss of tone and voice and conversational nature mixed with a complete lack of context, right? That theoretically, AI can write informational intent content, but they don't write it like a human would, would write it, right? And so we're going to we're gonna go into that next next week because I got real excited, Greg, when Google came out and said, no, no to AI content because you know I've been having arguments with people for a while about like, dude, this doesn't scale. You're not thinking about this practically. If you want to use it for your product descriptions, cool, go go at it. Makes sense there. But for like real content, content that's engaging no humans. Yeah. And we'll, again, next month. We'll, well you it. hit on the conversational aspect when he was talking about there, you know, obviously I get a lot of questions about all the new flashy things that come out. Cause I speaking at a lot of conferences and I'm active on social and I've gotten a lot of questions about the AI content. And a lot of our clients have asked about AI content. And the thing that I always say in presentations and the same way I answer these questions when people come up with AI content is the content on your site needs to sound like something that you would say face-to-face to a potential customer. It needs to sound conversational. If it's too dry, if it's too robotic, that person doesn't get a good vibe off of that content, even if they get the answer they're looking for. And that's why the AI content sucks. If you really read through it, sure, it's probably got the information there but it's so awkward to read. It's not going to do anything for you. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot here, but one, we had AI content before in some format. It's why copy press was created was we just had terrible content mill content with just people churning out words, right? It wasn't a computer, but it was just nonsense content that, you know, and there was an entire update called Panda that rolled out to destroy that model. And it's just funny to be like 11 or 12 years past that. And everybody's like, oh, this is a good idea <laughs> again. It's like, yeah, yeah. Why? Because computers do it. And I really think there's like this thing in people's mind where they're like, this is really good for a computer. It's like, okay, but that's different than really good content, right? You're yeah. just judging it based on, wow, a machine did this rather than this is good. Yep. And so, you know, I think exciting opportunities. I do think AI will have its fingerprints on content and how we do it long term. But the idea that, you know, we're just going to replace all our writers with AI, I, I don't see that in the future. So optimizing for transactional intent, letting Google and the user know what you're selling on a page in a clear way is the way to optimize for transactional intent. For your higher level taxonomy items, you want clear category level. So, you know, in, in Greg's world, this would be stuff like uh, pickup trucks, right? That's your higher level taxonomy category content where, you know, F-150 and even further down packages of F-150 are going to be your, your lower pieces. But you want to be able to explain the department, the type of goods they're selling. But just as often overlooked as product level content, People have a real hard time with product descriptions because I, I think it always comes down to a monetary issue, right? If you have 10,000 SKUs on your site, you're looking at that like, I've got to invest so much money in content to write fresh product descriptions. So you end up going with a manufacturer product description, which inherently is going to be owned by Amazon, most likely, right? Or some kind of big retailer. And so 
but that I mean, if you really, if you're an e-com and you look at your website, your your product level entries are driving a huge amount of your commerce, right? People that are are shopping around and coming back to a direct product. So having really well optimized product content can be a game changer for you. So the question I have then is if retailers have thousands of products, how do they possibly tackle that issue of optimizing for transactional intent? But, you know, what are some important things to consider when crafting content for transactional intent as well? Yeah, I mean, they just use AI generated content. I think it's the safest. <laughs> I, I honestly think if you're going to use it, so, so here's my strategy. I, I tell customers, like, okay, it's an 80 20 rule, right? We're not going to write the content for all 100% of your products. We're going to take the top 20%, the highest selling product and write unique descriptions for those and dial those in. And then we audit that on an ongoing quarterly, yearly basis to see what the new stuff that's popping in and rewrite descriptions for new stuff. There's no reason to write a fresh description for your lowest 30%, 40% selling, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, like it depends on what you're selling too. Because like if you're selling toilet paper, I don't think people really care about the product description. Right. But as you start to scale up in product cost or service cost, you get those more expensive items. The product description matters. You know, we have car dealers all the time ask us, do I need to write a unique description for the actual vehicle description page where the vehicle's listed? Because no SEO company out there is going to touch the individual pages for the vehicles because they change out way too often. Right. And it just becomes too expensive to even try to offer that to a dealership. Yeah, you mean, you mean they, like they, the inventory level, right? Like that. Yeah, like that's the inventory car. level of I'm on that 2022 yeah, yeah. black King Ranch F250. And do I need to write a description? Because at the point that they're on that individual vehicle, they're probably pretty sure they're going to buy that car. So I don't really need to do anything. I just need to have the price and the mileage and the VIN number and some pictures and I'm good, right? And the answer is not really true. You do want to have a description because, you know, if you're buying a boat or a car or you know, it doesn't have to be something that's, you know, that expensive, but you're buying something that's more expensive, that product description matters. I mean, like these these headphones I'm wearing are like super badass Sony noise canceling headphones. I'm not going to buy a $350 or $400 pair of headphones and not read about the product before I buy it. And just because you're a retailer that has 10,000, you know, SKUs on your site but you sell a lot of, you know, headsets and, and earphones and things like that. Sure. The little $10 pair of disposable throwaway wired earphones, you're probably not worried about a product description, but that 400, $450, $500 pair of luxury headphones, you probably ought to have a really good product description. So like you said, that 80, 20 rule is really what comes into play there. Yeah. I think, you know, again, on that, on that lower 80%, Th those are the kind of places I see AI content being potentially valuable, right? Like, hey, I'm not going to write it anyway, so might as well take a run with it here. And other things to put in here, though, are how you structure your content. So schema, wildly important for product level content, right? Making sure that Google knows, like, you know, what what's your sizing information? What are your reviews? Like, whatever that those pieces are so google can tell hey this is a product page this is how we should list it into the listings those kind of things and for customers let's say you're in a really dry vertical like you sell dishwasher replacement parts or something right like that that kind of data is going to be 
almost more important than the product description data in those cases because I want to know like, hey, is this the exact size and what's the item number and yep. what's this and all of that. So, you know, it can be dependent on your vertical, but I definitely think people approach this problem too much as a, we need to solve all of it where it's like, no, man, just go grab your, don't even do 80-20, just grab your top 50 products and go write really great descriptions for those. Well, and the other thing too, you know, for the last couple of minutes, we're talking about this transactional content and the 80-20 when you have a bunch of SKUs, but transactional content doesn't have to be product-focused content. It could be service-focused yeah. content. Like attorneys, if you're a personal injury attorney, you need a page for car crashes. You need a page for truck crashes. You need a page for bicycle accidents. You need slip and fall. You need dog bite. You need all of these various you know, medical malpractice, nursing home. You need a piece of content for each of those things. And that dog bite attorney page is transactional content, but it's not a product page. So right. you have to talk about here's what we do. Here's why we're awesome. Same thing. Car dealerships. Yeah, you do have the individual vehicle listing pages of here's this King Ranch F-150 you want to buy, but you also have the service side of things. You got to have a page about oil changes and tire rotations and wipers and batteries. And those aren't individual product listing. It's like, hey, come get oil changes here, yeah. which obviously people know they can get, but you've got to have that transactional content on the site so that you'll show up in search results for people in the area looking to get an oil change. And if you just have a bunch of junk on the page, why would they care? But if you've got an awesome piece of transactional content there that says, look, obviously you're looking for an oil change. We do oil changes, but here's why you want to get an oil change from us. That's what's really going to push people over the edge and make them want to do business with you and not with one of the multiple other competitors in town. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we just, we just went through this situation. We redid the copy press website. And I think one of the things we were clearly missing before was transactional content quite honest like we we handled the top level of the funnel and the middle level pretty well but just completely didn't look at the bottom level of the funnel and trying to get people hey here's what we do and you should buy it yeah. from us as well with shoemaker's children <laughs> yeah one i mean we have to remember as well in marketing that every product or service ultimately solves a problem and so if someone has a problem with a dog bite that they need an attorney to resolve there should be content on that because that's the problem that they will be searching for a solution for. So bear that in mind when we're, when we're creating content. Yep. So now we're going to dive into intent plus localization since we got Greg to do this webinar with us. And I think this is an important topic because, you know, as soon as you have a localized intent mix, things start to skew in those SERPs, right? So we're going to look at the four types of search intent and like how we would approach content from a localized perspective. So first one, navigational plus local. So navigational queries from my perspective, right? So Greg, you can come in here and be like, you're wrong. You're dumb. I know what I'm talking about. But in the local context, navigational queries become much more of what they are. I need to navigate to this thing, right? Like, you know, if I type in Ford right now, I'm going to get a map to a Ford dealership in Tampa. And, and you still, don't have to say Tampa and you don't have to say 100%. You can literally just say Ford dealer or Ford dealership yeah. and you're going to get a map that shows the ones that are close. Yeah, to you. that's why I put this example in a Publix. But the other ones, I tried to not put the qualifiers of the geo in our examples because Google knows, hey, most people that are doing this thing want a localized result for this. So question, how should marketers approach navigational queries respect to localization? Obviously, big topic, right? But what are some key things to think about when optimizing a brand for local? 
So the important part about localization that kind of prefaces all of the way we're going to talk about local for the next few slides is if you're a business that does face-to-face -face business with customers or you're a business that does, uh, well, face-to-face -face business with customers at a brick and mortar location, or you do face-to-face -face business with customers at their location. So you're a service-based business like a plumber or an electrician, then you actually need to do the localization. You need to do what's called local SEO, which is a kind of more complicated subset of regular SEO, because it's not just about putting content up and it's no longer about creating the best answer to the question the searcher is asking. Now, you don't have to have the best answer on the entire internet you need the best answer in your local market. So it's a little bit easier to write the content because again, you know, we mentioned the oil change example for car dealerships. There's a ton of car dealerships in every city and a ton of car dealerships across the United States and a ton of car dealerships across the entire world. If you want to show up for oil changes, you no longer have to write the best oil change page in the entire world. You just need the best oil change page in your local area. So it's a little bit easier, honestly, to write the content because you don't have to go as extreme to be better than everyone. You just have to be better than your competitors in your market. But the easy way to tell if you need localization or not is search for the products or services or the navigational type things that people might be searching for. And if you see that map pack pop up, that means Google thinks that query has local intent. And do it like Dave just mentioned. Don't enter a city or a neighborhood or a phrase like near me or nearby. Just enter that search phrase. And if you get the map pack, that means Google's using the local algorithm because Google has determined through years and years of studying trillions and trillions of queries that that search has local intent. And that means your content needs to be localized as well. So it's no longer just about writing the best answer the best answer in the local area and it needs to include phrases that show that you are in the local area so you've got to have you know your city or your neighborhood mentioned through the content and when you're optimizing that content in the title tag and the h1 heading and the image alt text and url and all those kinds of places you would typically optimize and just put the keyword phrase in now you need the keyword phrase and your location phrase as well yep great stuff all right. So informational plus local researching certain topics can take a localized slant too. when Google has clarity that the information is going to be different depending on the location. So my example here is because I'm building a new building on my property. And so if you type in like building codes, building permits, right? No geo specificity. Google's able to pick up on, hey, you're in Florida, you're in Hillsboro, whatever, right? These are the ones that you should want at the top. Yep. And so, you know, what should marketers do to find content? And, and so I think great examples of this are going back to the DUI, like kind of, or lawyer type of stuff, right? Yep. Where, you know, if I type in like, what's the impact on my points on my license for running a red light? I would have an expectation for localized information yep. as an, as a searcher, right? Because a guy in Illinois versus here in Florida, it's going to be completely different laws, whatever. So what should marketers do to find content in their space that could be localized from an informational perspective and then how to optimize it? Right. So like the idea yep. being, all right, I'm a lawyer, which content should I write to be localized? Yep. I mean, the lawyer, what should you write to be localized? If you're a lawyer in Tampa, you don't need a page on your website about handling slip and fall cases for people that slip on the ice because you guys don't get winter weather down there. So you have to think about that. But again, it's do those searches and figure out the things that are informationally important to the product or service that you sell and see, are those searches 
pinging with local intent or not, and then figure out how you need to write that content or approach that content differently. The more important bit of this is going to kind of skip ahead a little bit because we're about to talk about transactional plus local. And one thing that I always talk about in presentations is you really have to think about what you want to show up for that answers the questions that your potential customers are going to be asking. And we mentioned it earlier when we're talking about the informational stuff tends to be earlier in the funnel and the transactional stuff is at the bottom. The big mistake that most businesses and even a lot of marketers make is when they're creating this localized content, they're only creating localized transactional content. I want to catch people at the bottom of the funnel and get them to convert because they're looking for a local solution. That's what I want to do. And they don't do any informational localized content. And that's really important because you catch people way earlier in the funnel or even before they're even looking to buy. So that's a big strategy that we've always employed with local SEO with the clients that we work with is that we don't just write transactional content because if we did, it's a really narrow focus on the potential local audience of, of customers that you could be reaching yeah. because that content is only going to show up if somebody is looking to buy what you're selling right now today. And there's not that many people in your local area for any business that are looking to buy what you're selling right now. So you've got to do that localized informational content so that you have a broader appeal. We always call it the billboard effect. You don't put a billboard up on the highway and expect that every person that reads that billboard is going to be buying from you. Nobody has ever expected that. You put it up to build your brand and to build brand awareness. Same thing with the informational localized content. You want to put up informational content about what you do or sometimes informational content just about the local area that has nothing to do with what you sell because that will show up in searches and get exposure for your brand before people are looking to buy what you're selling. So great example with the car dealerships we work with, with the medical practices we work with, with the attorneys we work with, we're going to do at least one or two pieces of content on their blog every month that are informationally focused posts about the local area that may or may not have anything to do with the business and what they sell for that very reason. We want to share things that are helpful, useful, relevant, and interesting for the local community at large, because that's what people are going to be searching for. And then that site comes up. And if you make that site a local destination, it shows that they're involved in the community and they're part of the community and you share helpful information. So you show up more often earlier in that funnel and get exposure so then when people get down the funnel and become transactional, they already know about you and you're more likely to be in consideration. Yeah, I mean, the the stuff that has more of a local focus is going to play on different channels anyway. Like, you know, if I'm just writing content about slip and falls and workers' comp stuff, and I'm sharing that on my Twitter as a local lawyer and my Facebook as a local lawyer, yeah, it's cares? just it's noise. You're, who are you talking to there? But if you're talking yeah. about like, hey, we sponsored this Optimist Club and hey, that farmer's market's happening down the road and we'll be there too. check us out. And this is happening. I mean, that's like you're building your community. That's your customer base, right? Exactly. Or it doesn't even have to be the local posts. Like, you know, let's say you're a bankruptcy attorney. If all you're talking about is chapter seven and chapter 13 and chapter 11, that's a really narrow focus. I mean, maybe there's a lot of people filing for bankruptcy, but that's the only kind of content that's going to show up in search results. So instead, write financial tips, you know, how to how to catch up on debt if you're behind. You know, a lot of bankruptcy attorneys freak out going, oh, I don't want to tell people what to do. I only want them to file for bankruptcy. But if you're sharing those tips about, oh, my gosh, what do you do if you're kind of struggling with debt? And it's not saying, call me to do your bankruptcy. 
Why would I do that? Well, you do it because that's that early funnel customer that doesn't know they want to file or doesn't know they need to file, but that's helpful stuff. And it makes sense to go out and share that on social because that's something that applies to everyone. Even if it doesn't apply to someone that's a potential client for you, if you have that post out there, that's things that can get shared and word of mouth that gets shared. Same thing with those local posts. You know, sometimes you can kind of tie it in. You know, we'll do stuff with like Jeep dealers and say, hey, you just bought this cool new Jeep. Here's five cool places you can go that are within, you know, for a road trip that are a half day drive within, you know, a half day drive of town or whatever. So cool places to go off roading or things to go see or parks to go see. It kind of ties in because, yeah, you're talking about, hey, you just bought a Jeep. But but notice it's not, hey, you want to buy a Jeep from us, so go to these places. It's we know you already bought from us. This post isn't trying to get you to buy anything from us. It's just cool stuff to go do now that you've bought this Jeep. But that's the kind of content that your customers like and keep your customers loyal and does really well on social and gets shares and does really well in search and gets people exposed to you that maybe do want to buy from you. So you have to think outside of the traditional box of everything on my site needs to be this piece of content is meant for you to call me right now. You stand out to be an expert, but it also, you're approachable and people like to do business with people who are humans who are approachable. Exactly, exactly. All right, next one. See, that one bounced in. That's the bounce transition. Um, Commercial and transactional. So I bundled these together because I think from a localized intent, they do kind of get bundled. I mean, we could argue about it like in terms of like, like what we just talked about, like, you know, people searching higher in the funnel for like financial services or whatever. Also, I just got lazy. So they're all in one (laughs) slide now. So Google knows when an item you're searching for will be bought locally in most cases. Again, the example I use was just pizza, right? Type pizza in, you're not getting a definition or whatever. Google knows people, they type in pizza, they want to buy a pizza. Or if you put in the word like a buy Ford, you're mostly you're going to get a map with that, right? Like with dealerships yep. that are in the area. So, how can marketers leverage Google's localization of a transactional or commercial page to push customers to convert faster? I guess to make this, yeah, let's like from from the concept of you know when somebody types in that buy F one fifty kind of term, right? Like, how are you working with? customers to make sure like people can get as quickly from that term to a purchase? Well, again, it's you have to know that there is local intent for those queries. So you need to be checking or your marketing agency or your freelancer you're working with or your person in house, you need to be checking these queries to see because this changes over time. You know, there are a lot of queries. I saw a presentation a couple of years back before COVID hit, I can't remember who it was, or I'd give them a shout out, but it was a presentation talking about a lot of these queries that used to be purely transactional and just show all e-com results have now become localized. And through COVID, that changed even more. So a phrase like patio furniture, if you typed in patio furniture three years ago, it'd be that wall of e-commerce and shopping results. Now you type in patio furniture and you get a map pack because now a lot of these queries have more local intent because that's how people have shifted the way that they're going to buy. So you have to pay attention to that and think about the fact that, okay, if these are things that are transactionally focused and they are local, you've got to write the right kind of content that now isn't that just buy, buy, buy right now, but buy right now, but also we're local and here's why we're awesome. And here's why you want to buy from us and not from a competitor. And then again, depending on what kind of product or service you're selling, 
it could get even more in depth from there because the attorney that's got a dog bite page up really just has to have the best dog bite page in the local area. And that's all you really need. But a car dealer trying to sell an F-150, there might be 10, 15, 20 other Ford dealerships in the immediate market. They're all trying to sell F-150. So just having that F-150 page isn't enough. Now you create a page that's more in-depth than that actual product page that talks about interior features, exterior features, and all these things, and you optimize it around the local area. So yeah, uh, you just there we go. As Live. an example, patio furniture, right? And so if I click on this Home Depot listing, goes deeper into maps. They're also integrating now what they're 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 shopping stuff in here as well, right? Their feed. So I mean, this is a pretty quick two-step process to get into now a direct conversion from just typing in patio furniture to your point would have been an e-commerce heavy. And there still is a good amount of e-com in here. Right. But that map pack is right below the ads. And again, there's a pretty quick way, you know, for if you're a small retailer, like making sure that you, I think Google shopping is a solid product and making sure that you have your Google shopping feeds with products running through them. Like, as you can see, you'll be able to effectively yeah, leverage these local listings for. And there's something important right here. When we do this query and we look at the map pack, obvious example, we're talking about patio furniture has local intent. We see regular paid search ads first, then we see the map pack. And now the map pack, for those of you that have been paying attention to this for a while, used to be the map with three underneath. Now Google has moved the map to the right side. But notice right here, we see the traditional pack that has three results. But when he clicks more places, it takes us to what we call the local finder page. Notice here, the top two listings are different. And if you look, they're labeled as ads. Mm -hmm. Over here on the map, those are the two green map pins. So not only do you show at the very top, you have a colored map pin down at the bottom. And you can actually kind of customize what those map pins are if you're buying that ad unit. So this is another thing to think about. It's not just about do we need to create localized content. Think about these things. If if you are selling patio furniture in the Tampa area and you know Home Depot and Lowe's are probably dominating the market because they do pretty good SEO and you've got to compete. Okay, look, Rooms to Go and Madani Furniture are really forward thinking and paying attention. And they're like, hey, guys, let's just buy our way into this and do the map pack because then our map pins look different. So they visually stand out. And we're at the top of that list. Once people come to this page, they might not be the closest place to go. But now look, that rooms to go has 2000 reviews and Home Depot has 2000 and Lowe's has 2000. But Madani has what, 115 reviews? That doesn't yeah. mean that people aren't going to buy because they don't have thousands. But Madani probably had no hope of showing up in the top four or five. But now because they're buying that local ad unit, they're showing up. So create that content and then create a local ad unit, buy that local ad unit to overcome that proximity bias. So you don't have to be the closest to the person anymore. And to overcome the fact that some of those other guys are just always going to out SEO you and have better content and more content. So sometimes just buy your way in another thing i wanted to show is like right i mean the the need for google a publicly traded company to make constantly more and more revenue and to integrate yeah. with more and more partners you get things like right they're they're bringing the transactions swifter even on a localized basis right so your order online is going to take you to whatever their options are right like i've seen uber eats and doordash and stuff on here before so that was with the pizza one. I'm hungry, so that's why I'm looking up pizza. 
stuff right now. So I think Cross, now you have a couple of questions that people sent in. Yeah, I do. I mean, one uh, suggestion I have as well, a lot of businesses find it difficult to create content because they've become an expert in their field. And they find it difficult to separate the fact that they're an expert from the fact that people who come to them for the solution are not an expert. And so this is where we find a lot of very dry terminology and it sounds like there are experts when you look at your web page and you think that you've covered everything because you're the experts. And so you can often use jargon, which to a beginner would be extremely off-putting. And so one thing you can do is speak to people who are answering the phones in your business because those guys and gals who are on customer service or on phone calls will be taking a lot of those initial beginner questions from people. And those types of questions can really drive your content because they are asked by people who are looking for solutions and who are beginners. And if you write according to the way you speak to your customers and initial sales inquiries, you'll be creating content which comes across as relevant to someone who's a beginner, who's not an expert. Questions. We have a question from Jeffrey in the United States, and he said, what simple metrics or free SEO tool might you recommend to regular or somewhat skeptical small business clients as the way to observe tangible upward traffic statistics for the first month or two after SEO investments and implementation? And I mean, you know, we all say that... That, that, what, the answer is you're not going to see results in well, the first month or two. For sure. SEO is a long tail, and that's one of its great things. And one of its problems is that it is a long tail. And due to the fact that it's a long tail, that's why mixing paid search marketing and organic search marketing work. So is there any, you know, stick your finger in the wind, which way is the wind blowing indication that we can get for seo at the yeah. at the start what we see is right like that we put up a massive amount of content at copy press so like what we see generally is if you're just looking for a budget justification like hey ceo this is looking like it's going to work in the first three months you should start to see your content ranking in the top 100, right? So you can look at like a, a SEMrush or an Ahrefs and say, okay, you know, our baseline was zero. Now we're ranking for a lot of keywords in the top 100. This is not a traffic generating metric by any stretch, right? So like, but it is giving you an idea of what might happen in the future. Cause we, we really see at this point in time that rankings do not hit a peak level for six months, right? And that's with a website that is, actually been active and live and has value yep. and all of these things, right? So if you're starting from scratch, scratch, you might be looking at a year to see that that traffic gain. And so just being realistic. So if you're looking for, well, when will I get to be able to see ROI in the first two or three months? You're not, right? And I'm, we're always really, really... And, you know, not to be the SEO guy, but it kind of does depend because in some cases, if you do have a website that's already established, you're not starting from scratch and that website is lacking a lot of content. You know, maybe it was a, a car dealership that didn't have any content around their services they provide, or it's an, a personal injury attorney that just had a page that said, we do yeah. personal injury work. And then you add that dog bite lawyer, that car crash lawyer. Maybe you're not gonna get tons and tons of traffic, but you know, use Google Analytics, and if you get two visits 
in the first month to a page that didn't exist before. Okay, that's progress. Does that mean you got phone calls and you yeah, yeah. sold more cases? No. Well, these are but all a yeah. month in. It's incremental. And, you know, like you said, it takes about six months. That's typically what we see too. You put a piece of content up. Yeah. It takes time for that to gain relevance and gain visibility and get links and do all the things it needs to do and work together with the rest of the pieces of what you're doing for SEO on the whole site. And usually after about five or six months is when you start to really see the traction and really see the traffic improve. But to answer the simple question of what tools can you use? Yeah, SEMrush, Ahrefs is really great. Google Analytics is great. You're not going to see immediate results, but that's ultimately what you want to see because creating content and just using a rank tracker isn't a good way to judge success because you know all day long, we could write tons of content that ends up ranking number one all over the place. But if it's for queries, if those pieces of content are around queries that no human is ever going to search for, who cares that you've got 500 pages on your site that rank number one for that search term? If no human customer is ever going to search for that, it doesn't matter. You're not going to have the phone ringing because of that content. So pay attention to Google Analytics. Down the road, does that content generate more traffic, generate more leads so that you end up having more sales? And then pay attention to Search Console to see if you're getting more search impressions. So it's not necessarily about what position you rank in. It's are you getting impressions? Are people seeing it? And then eventually, as you get more visibility, you should get more click-throughs. And then pay attention to insights in Google business profiles because the Google business profile insights will show you branded discovery impressions and non-branded discovery impressions. So the branded discovery impression is not as important because that's people looking for you by name, the navigational type stuff. But the non-branded, the discovery search impressions especially are the phrases that you're showing up for where people aren't looking for your brand. And as you're adding more content, you should see those search impressions increasing as well. Yeah, I mean, I another thing I would throw out there, like, you know, it sounds like this is like a reticent, like, small business owner who doesn't know whether they want to start or not. If I give you the answer of six months today, my answer in six months is also going to be six months. So you yeah. just wasted six months. <laughs> so and the answer of six months from then is going to be six months. And so it really just comes down to, are you eventually going to invest in it? It, all right. So you you got to sit through that pain point or at least invest that amount of time. Right. And just sit there and be like, all right, we're going to do this now and hope for the best. Like Greg said, hope that you start to see some traction and put all the tools in place. But this thing that I see people all the time with, it's like, well, we need. Well, what's the point of investing in it if it's not for six months, like six months from now, you're going to wish you had ever. that traffic. Right. So, yep. It's a little bit like a university degree. Like you don't get one for three or four years but you've got to start investing, but you don't see the results of it until after you've actually done all the work for it. And SEO is a little bit like that. But another really interesting point about SEO is that a lot of the time people put a lot of focus into SEO and getting to the top of Google for the search terms, et cetera, et cetera. But their website is still crap in terms of converting that traffic. And so this is a really important point that I would make to Jeffrey as well is that while your client is gently chomping at the bit, waiting for some sort of tangible results. The results don't come from the placement of and the traffic. It actually comes from then being able to change that traffic into an inquiry or into a new customer. So make sure that you've got some clear mechanism on your web pages to get the interest turned into action, turned into desire for doing business with your 
company. We have a question or a number of questions from Hillary in Kenya. I have a story for Hillary, actually. One of the languages in Kenya is actually Swahili. And my third son, Per, in Sweden, some years ago, started learning Swahili. And okay, you know, it's it's interesting. It's about as useful as my ability to speak Swedish in Oregon, right? But like, who speaks Swahili in, in Sweden? Well, some weeks ago, Per, who works in a store in Sweden doing technical support, had a call put through to him uh, by mistake from this guy that was looking for some information, but it wasn't actually Per. And so this, this guy spoke with Per and Per said, you know, how can I help you? But Per heard this guy speaking to, I think it was his wife in the background, in Swahili. And so Per started speaking Swahili to this guy in Sweden, and the guy was just amazed. So <laughs> I just thought that was funny that, that Hillary would be from Kenya, and I'm happy to share that story with you. But Hillary's a number of questions. The first couple of questions I can answer. How do you check for random HTML tags in Word documents and your content management system, and how do you remove those tags? Well, there's a free program out there. It's an open source program called HTML Tidy. And you can run content through that, clean out those tags, and you'll find that you don't end up with stray, extraneous HTML tags littering your content. Now, the questions regarding content and SEO that Hillary asked was, how do you ensure that all the H tags in your document have a function in your rant ranking? What are the HTML tags and their purpose in yeah, terms I mean, of headlines? Well, yeah, so H tags, their original intent is to, to lay out your content on a page, like an old school outline you would write for a school paper, right? You have your, your title, you have H1, this is the most important, H2 secondary, kind of like Roman numeral one and letter A. At some point, they got hijacked by designers and CSS people <laughs> to like be design oriented. And that is not what they are there for. Like CSS in its nature can be assigned to whatever. We don't need these H tags to be assigned to, to styles. But what they're supposed to do is help show the hierarchy of content. Now, their importance and ranking, let's not even argue about it because who, who, who knows? For me, it's more about classification. Like I always break down search into two pieces. There's a classification of content, meaning when Google reads a document, do they know what it's about? And then there's the ranking. How important is this in the classification? The H tags are really that classification. What is this about, right? From my perspective. And that's why when I write that content, I want it to be clear. This page is about this and it's structured well and Google can really understand why it's important. That doesn't, you know, I can write the 10x piece of content, the best piece of content ever written on a topic in the world, and no one will ever see it in Google because the ranking factors aren't there, right? It's not on CNN. But it's also kind of the wrong question to ask of what importance do the H tags play in ranking or, or whatever. It yeah, was yeah, 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 yeah. Like, because you could write that that 10x piece of the best piece of content on the internet that ranks number one and generates a million views a month. And it may have one H1 and that's it. Yeah. You don't have to have these headings. You shouldn't go, how many headings do I need to have on the page to rank well? Right. Or what headings should I use to rank well? That's yeah. the wrong way to think about it. The better way to think about it is like Dave was just saying, 
Think about how to make that page look good to people that are trying to read it, make it skimmable, make it readable, and then just put one H1 and that's it. And then beyond that, who cares what H? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's these micro elements that used to be used to be really important within SEO, meaning like pre-Google, right? That have kind of stuck around in SEO lore, so to speak, you know, keyword density. Like there's a bunch of these, these topics. I think H tags are in there now. I still think that for me, because I'm a purist, I like to see strong H tag utilization in organizing content. But again, like if a piece of content didn't have that, do I think it's going to bomb? No, I don't. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Well, like if you have this awesome 10 X piece of content, you've got your H one at the top and you wrote it with an H one, couple of H twos, H three, H four, you broke it up with multiple H number headings. And I wrote, a similar piece of content, not obviously duplicate because that breaks the whole example, but let's say I write a similar piece of content and I have one H1 at the top and I've got subheadings in there, but they're not actually H subheadings. It's just a piece of, uh, it's a paragraph tag that I then tag with a, a CSS ID and make it look like yours. So like the size and style of those headings looks exactly the same. So to a human reading that page, it just looks like headings, but the code on the back end, it's not an H2 or an H3 or an H4 or an H5. In the grand scheme of things, it probably doesn't really yeah. matter that much. Right, right. 100%. Yeah, I agree. Good content is good for SEO, ultimately. Yeah. Stuff that people actually like and engage with. Google ranks that and has done more and more since the Panda update many years ago. A question that Hillary had was she wanted to know about keyword research or research, depending on how you pronounce it, <laughs> and how it relates to a client's search intent vis-a-vis -vis the website owner whose intent is to get a hit from end users browsing the web. So keyword research, how does that relate to a client's search intent? And what do we suggest people use for that keyword or topic research? Yeah, I think SEMrush, SEMrush does a really good job now with they have informational commercial breakdowns in their results. We use that stuff, that data all the time. And we use a different data source. But when we're doing keyword research, depending on the content type and where it's going to be placed on the website, right? Like when you're writing your blog content, you don't necessarily want to have transactional content. Like if this keyword is being transactional in nature, why would you write that for the blog? So I think SEMrush and a bunch of the data providers have pretty good data on what's informational, what's commercial. I don't know if how far they break it down from there, but at least those two elements I know are broken down. Ahrefs is awesome too for keyword research. And if you're new, if you're watching this and you're newer to SEO or, or content and you need help with keyword research, SEMrush, sorry, I'm old school. I still, I refuse to ever call it SEMrush, but SEMrush has the academy division where it's a lot of free courses that you can take. And I have an hour long course about how to do keyword research with the SEMrush tool set on the SEMrush Academy that you can go watch. That's that's really helpful. Yeah, good. And then Hillary's final question kind of answers itself. She says, say something about the deep web, which is full of information and how I can extract facts from there as they do not rank on the first or second page. My answer would be click through to the third or fourth page. I mean, like learn to use also Boolean search operators in your search to include things to refine your search so that although it's not on the first page of Google, refine your search to bring some of the other information in there. 
Any other comments yeah. on that one? Yeah, I think that's a good. What yeah, you yeah, said great. in your English accent is the right answer. As opposed to your English accent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that we would like to add further about search intent? No, I just think it's a topic that people should think about specifically in regards to the when they're creating a plan for their website, each section of their website, they need to think about what is the intent for somebody finding this page? How should I structure this content? And it's wild how often we don't see people thinking about that concept. They're just thinking no, no, about it still from a churn out content. Yeah. Or even still a keyword perspective, but that keyword's not tied to an action or why it exists, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I mean, you know, one thing I've always taught when I teaching copywriting and, and it applies to SEO as well is that when you're writing the content, does it pass what I call the bar stool test? And the bar stool test is it's quite a simple example. Would you sit next to someone and actually listen to them describe the information that you've asked about? Or is it boring and is it just seeming like dry content? The content needs to feel engaging, human created. It needs to feel like you're having a conversation with the person, which is what people enjoy and is the kind of content that people engage with and then want to actually do business with you. So thank you, Dave and Greg, for your time today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will be posting a recording of this, and we will let you all know. And look forward to our next webinar, which will be next month, on AI versus human created content. I'm David Cross. I'm from copypress.com. And thanks again for joining us today. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of the CopyPress Content Podcast. Thanks for listening. Visit copypress.com slash podcast to discover more podcast episodes and to learn more about my company, CopyPress. We're leaders in content marketing and we can help you to build and put in place strong content marketing that works for your company. Join me on the next episode as we share more ideas about how to get better results from your content marketing. And if you'd like me to answer questions about content marketing, SEO, or marketing on a future episode, visit copypress.com slash contact.